Today, I'm talking with Rave T. Kumar, who is a professor of educational psychology at the University of Toledo. She is a Fulbright specialist scholar, past associate editor for developmental psychology, past historian and current secretary for Division 15 of the American Psychological Association, and provost faculty fellow for the academic years 2018 through 2020. She earned a PhD in education and psychology from the combined program in education and psychology at the University of Michigan, and was an adjunct assistant research scientist at the Institute for Social Research's Survey Research Center at the University of Michigan as well. In her research, she focuses on social and cultural processes involved in constructing a sense of self and identity among adolescents and young adults in culturally diverse societies. Of particular interest are the role of teachers, teacher education programs, schools, communities, and families in facilitating minority and immigrant adolescents' development, learning, and motivation. She was a recipient of a Spencer Foundation major grant and is co-principal investigator on a grant funded by the National Science Foundation. She has also received internal grants from the University of Toledo to conduct mindfulness intervention projects with elementary school students and pre-service teachers. Her work has been published in the American Educational Research Journal, Educational Psychologist, the Journal of Educational Psychology, Journal of Research on Adolescents, the Journal of Teacher Education, Contemporary Educational Psychology, and Educational Studies. Today, we're going to talk about Rave T's article entitled Weaving Cultural Relevance and Achievement Motivation into Inclusive Classroom Cultures, which she wrote with Akane Zusho as part of a 2018 special issue of Educational Psychologist on Critical Reflections and Future Directions in the Study of Race, Ethnicity, and Motivation. Rave T, thank you so much for talking to me today about your work. Thank you. Happy to be here. So can we start out by you giving our listeners just a brief overview of the article? Yes, uh, I really want to thank my co-authors Akani and Rhonda, and particularly Akani. Without it was a truly collaborative process, and uh, it was the best experience. Uh, we had been talking about this issue for a long time. We were both we are both interested in issues of culture and motivation, and uh, eventually we decided to turn in a proposal for a special issue to the educational psychologist. And we're fortunate that it was accepted. And that's when we wrote this article, Weaving Cultural Relevance and Achievement Motivation into Inclusive Cultural Classrooms. And uh, uh, our main purpose was to examine the points of in intersection between the two streams of literature, and namely social cognitive theories of motivation and culturally relevant and responsive education. Now, these two uh, literatures seem to run on parallel tracks. And indeed, both, both these literatures emphasize the importance of meaningfulness, competence, autonomy, and relatedness as it relates to promoting students' learning and well-being. But uh, clearly, there are some basic fundamental differences between these two frameworks, their historical origins, their philosophical foundations, and uh, even the very definition of culture. So we really worked at seeing where, what are the points of intersection? Where do the, where are the differences? And how can we learn from both these literatures to really understand how we can in, enhance motivation, learning, and engagement for students in culturally diverse classrooms? And that was the motivational factor that really influenced our writing this particular article. That's really helpful, and you know, I think the article is uh, just a wonderful example of how you can bring together two literatures and use them to inform one another and better understand the ideas from each perspective. And you do a lot of really helpful comparing between the two literatures, how they connect, where they can expand on each other. Um, and one of those ways, as you mentioned, was 
the comparison of how achievement motivation researchers define and use the term culture versus how scholars of culturally relevant and responsive education might define and use it. Can you talk a little bit about those differences and um, how they inform how you bridge those two fields? Yes, uh, I think um, you know there are so many definitions of culture, and it is really uh, it's you can go as comprehensive and broad or as narrow. And uh, indeed, both literatures do define culture. There are some shared aspects, but I would I want to emphasize that. Uh, when we talk about achieve, you know, all the achievement motivation literature, we think of culture in terms of shared norms and values, in terms of ethnicity. Sometimes, you know, we compare groups, uh, different groups, and how they compare on certain motivational constructs, but we never really discuss it in terms of race. And we don't discuss issues, for example, of power, equity, and racism, and how these might influence some of these motivational constructs and the way uh, and why students are motivated to do what they do. We don't take those factors into account. On the other hand, if you look at uh, culturally responsive and relevant education and multicultural education, culture is foregrounded. It is the primary focus is on race and oppression and prejudice and what are the consequences of this and of course of cultural hegemony in society on minority students learning and development. And so these very basic fundamental differences in the definition of culture, I think, makes a lot of difference in the ways in which uh, we study students and students motivation. But one of the things when multicultural educationists or scholars in uh, talking about culturally responsive and relevant education, they make uh, they have a singular focus on students of color. They uh, they really and they really look at these racialized experiences that students have, uh, which I don't think we emphasize enough when we talk about culture in um, motivational research. However, I think uh, um, I do have to add that now I think it almost seems to me that in the past couple of years, maybe three or four years, there has been a real interest in looking at culture and how the macro societal structures really influence students, students of different cultural groups, you know, students of color, mainstream students, and how these things impact students' motivation across the board. And uh, particularly if you look at some of the recent publications, including our special issue on culture and motivation, the other one that's uh, coming out in contemporary ed psych, or the work that's been done by Sandra Graham and others, they really speak to addressing these issues in more depth and really focusing on culture and what it means for students, uh, particularly minority students. And I, I thought you um, highlighted that really well in the paper, particularly this distinction between achievement motivations focus primarily upon kind of micro level or person centered views of culture and almost this kind of category, we call it a categorical way of thinking about culture um, versus uh, culturally responsive education's view of it as more of a macro system, as more of a almost a sociological perspective. And I think both those perspectives are, are really important. And I'm pleased to hear about all the good work that's coming out to support that kind of work. Uh, I know that we just we just had a podcast actually with Jessica Takir Gunby and Paul Schutz in which we talked about race focused and race free image constructs. And it sounds like that work is in line with what you're doing. And indeed, it struck me that you were kind of taking a race free imaged approach to a lot of the motivation constructs uh, in this particular piece. 
Indeed. And um, in fact, I think what we see in our motivational literature and what has been done really well is really looking at the micro context and looking at how classroom processes influence student learning. We've also been really good at doing some cross-cultural work and we're looking at are there aspects of these motivational constructs that are universal and, uh, and you know, conducting studies in different nations and different uh, societies and seeing do, do, for example, achievement goals like mastery and performance, do they work the same way? What does autonomy look like in different cultures? I think we've done a good job of that. But uh, what we have not done in motivational literature is looking at the sociocultural context, uh, for example, in society, what are the uh, general beliefs of the dominant society and how that might impact? I think that's where uh, our motivational literature is la lacking to some degree. And, th and that makes uh, good sense to me. And I'm, I'm glad that we're focusing more upon that because it's, it's difficult to imagine feelings of autonomy or relatedness or uh, meaningfulness being somehow separate from society. I mean, those things are derived from relations and interactions with society. So and of course, there's one thing I do want to add, and I was, it was really, you know, when I was working on this uh, article, on this manuscript, um, did do a lot of uh, reading of all the, all the literatures, and uh, in the process, uh, particularly when I was reading expectancy value theory, it, what was not emphasized as much earlier was the cultural milieu, the, you know, the gender role expectations in society, the stereotypes uh, in, that are held in society. How do they influence? And uh, Jackie Eccles talks about it. She said, I did not include that before, but I think in looking at those collective identities is important. And so you can see that even within the theoretical frameworks, we are starting to bring this into our motivational literature. And I think that's important. Mm -hmm. And I think your article um, with Akane actually kind of pushes the field further in that direction and helps the field think about different ways of uh, approaching motivation from that more cultural milieu and macro level perspective. You know, for example, so you talked about these four foci of achievement motivation research, meaningfulness, competence, autonomy, and relatedness. And uh, in terms of uh, meaningfulness, you talked about cost, and I know that in the motivational literature, folks sometimes say that we don't do enough about cost. You talked about cultural cost as uh, an aspect of culturally relevant research and education. Can you talk about cultural cost and how it fits into achievement motivation? Yes, I, I think, again, um, you know, there's been a sudden resurgence of interest in the issue of cost. And uh, we talk about cost in various different ways, but it is more at the personal level, you know, giving up some time and so forth. But there, I did not see anything that spoke to cultural cost. And uh, I was thinking about um, the work that I'd done earlier on cultural dissonance between home and school. And uh, it seemed to me that that was truly a cultural cost because it takes a psychological toll on uh, students, particularly if they experience dissonance. And um, so I, I define it as the psychological cost that is associated uh, when uh, students find that what they are doing lacks cultural meaningfulness. And, it's, uh, and it creates a sense of cultural dissonance uh, between the two contexts. It is a cultural cost that takes away from students' learning. And uh, I think that that is one issue that I would really like to pursue in more detail and see what is cultural cost and what are the different dimensions of cultural cost. I gave an example of cultural dissonance, 
but that is just one example. It could also be meaningfulness. It could be how, uh, you know, even perspectives on autonomy. I think uh, we tend to think that autonomy is the same and it's viewed the same, but it is a, it truly is so different in different cultures. So if, what are these expectations for, uh, for students and how do they uh, gel with what they are comfortable with? I think uh, cultural cost is an important issue in that, in that framework and I would like to pursue it in more detail. It, I mean, it sounds incredibly important. So if I'm understanding it correctly, there's um, there's a cultural cost that comes from having to, um, in essence, kind of give up or ignore part of yourself to kind of fit into uh, a school culture, for example, that doesn't really match aspects of your culture. Um, but, but likewise, it feels like there's also a cost of um, kind of working against that. Like I could imagine how it might be really draining to constantly feel like you have to be reasserting your culture to be genuine within a context. And that also, to me, sounds like a cultural cost that students of color might face uh, in classrooms that aren't culturally responsive. Absolutely. In fact, uh, I think that's where if we look at the literature on culturally responsive and relevant education, they emphasize that the students, uh, we have to adopt uh, students' cultural and individual modes of learning and, uh, and allow students to be ethnically and culturally expressive. I think that is a, that is something to be uh, taken into account when we talk about cultural cause, because I still, in fact, uh, I still remember when I, long back, when I interviewed the student, uh, he, he demonstrated how he talks when he has talks in the classroom and how he talks. He was talking to me and telling me about Ebonics, and he said, you want to understand, and he, and he said some things about using that that style of speaking and he said but that's not the way to corporate america so i thought that was really interesting this was an eighth grader so uh, yes we have to allow them to express themselves students shouldn't feel that they cannot express themselves in ways that is comfortable for them and meaningful for them i i totally agree and i think your example is a really um a wonderful one to illustrate first of all that Students, even very young students in eighth grade, we could debate whether that's young or not, but I'm sure even younger students uh, experience this cost. They understand it. You know, they, they, they understand they have to do this switching, um, which, which I would imagine, again, would be really draining and, and difficult to do on a, on a day-to-day basis. And I think your example also illustrates how students, um, the calculus of their motivation, we talk about, you know, you look at their expectancies, you look at their values, you look at how, you know, confident they feel, whatever framework you're using. And we do this kind of uh, mathematics to figure out what that might result in in terms of motivation. But students who feel a disconnect between their own culture and the culture of the classroom, that math is totally different because they have to factor in all this other kind of switching or compromising or other things that they have to do to fit in. And so I think it really illustrates very well that motivation can be really different depending upon how connected you feel to the culture of the classroom. Right. And uh, I'd just like to add a word of caution there. And I don't believe that every cultural difference creates dissonance or discomfort or is a cultural cost. But I Difference doesn't equal dissonance. And, it, and I think just as we say that we teachers have to be aware of differences, have to understand, I think um, 
it, it doesn't mean that you accommodate to every single difference because it's going to be a pro problem. And I don't think students see it that way either. And that is important to bear in mind because sometimes we think uh, we have to go completely we, everything has to be matched and so I don't actually I don't like the word match and mismatch because we, we all bring different things to the classroom the teacher brings different uh, points of view and you know different so her her prior experiences or his prior experiences as to students so but it is just making sure that we are demonstrate an understanding for each other demonstrate that there are different ways of being and different ways of learning and I think that is more important than trying to match every single cultural aspect it's not possible and it's not necessary either that's a really good point it seems to relate to what you were talking about in the article about teachers cultural competence yes and, and so it strikes me that uh, it's important to help teachers understand exactly what you said, that it's, it's not necessarily the case that um, they have to uh, micro adjust to every student and their particular difference, but rather it's about displaying culturally relevant and responsive um, behaviors and words and actions. And it's finding a way to be equitable in the classroom um, as opposed to, um, what I think some teachers might feel, which is a sense of, well, there's just so much variance here, I don't know how to act. Right, right. I'm just reminded of Schrader's work where he talks about a view from many wares. I love that phrase. And it's because it's it helps us understand that the same issue can be viewed from many different perspectives. And uh, we don't immediately jump to judgment about which is good and which is bad, but really weigh them carefully. It doesn't mean that every way view is good, or but being open to viewing uh, something from many different perspectives. Mm -hmm. uh, another way in which I thought you uh, demonstrated, you and Akane demonstrated some um, informing of the motivational literature was in terms of autonomy and how from a culturally responsive and relevant education perspective, autonomy has both product and process aspects. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I absolutely love this notion of pro product and process. I really would like to talk about, you know, how is autonomy viewed from the um, from achievement motivation perspective and how it compares, because I think there are some basic differences, particularly with, with regard to autonomy. You know, when we talk about autonomy in, uh, in achievement motivation literature, it's often restricted to the classroom environment. So we talk about choices, we talk about manipulating materials and uh, being non-controlling in the classroom, giving students choices and so forth. Um, and it is something that the team, that the, teacher creates in the classroom. It's, a, it's an environment, just as in mastery-focused classrooms, you provide autonomy to students. And uh, the way that it is viewed uh, in, uh, in culturally responsive and relevant education is, it seems to be somewhat, it's, the words that are used are different. It is talked about empowering students. It is transformative. It is a, and they talk about it both as a product and a process. It is a product because when students experience autonomy and they uh, they feel empowered and it is uh, it is something that you 
and you encourage students to be autonomous. You teach them how to be autonomous. And it is, uh, but at the same time, it is not something you either provide autonomy or you don't, but you actually teach them to learn to be autonomous. In that sense, it's a process. It's a quality that uh, all individuals should strive. It is, a, it, it is where you help them, uh, help students think critically and this is where even the notion of the you know view from many wares comes about where they look at what they are learning from multiple perspectives and are able to critique it and value it and in the, in the process of doing that they are actually developing autonomy and what happens here is that that is a process because they are they are really asserting what they think and uh, I think this is what uh, the ultimate goal for culturally responsive and relevant education is, is that you are able to then look at society, look at the racism and discrimination, and look at what you can do to make a difference. And that is the ultimate goal. But so it is, uh, it's never that it is autonomy is achieved, but you're always working towards it. And you're always trying to have a sense of agency and see how I can make a difference, even if it's not the most comfortable thing to do. So in that sense, autonomy becomes both a process, it's a learning experience, and it is something that, yeah, that you can achieve over time. That, I think that's a really crucial point and a nice example of how uh, the culturally responsive and relevant education literature can inform the achievement motivation literature. Um, you know, it's, it's unfair to say that achievement motivation literature um, views autonomy simply as the provision of opportunity, but I think there wasn't in the literature as much thought about how to foster autonomy for students that experience a world in which maybe that world doesn't want them to act autonomously or doesn't make it easy for them to act autonomously. And uh, teachers with cultural competence um, understand just what you said, that uh, it's not just about providing opportunities for choice, but actually helping students critically reflect upon and act within a society um, to try to achieve um, social justice or other kinds of um, personal or societal goals. Indeed, if you uh, compare the two, it is, uh, you know, these are lofty ideals. Um, when you talk about uh, autonomy being a process and product. And uh, for all the, the philosophical and theoretical discussions about it, I think that that literature is really lacking in how do you measure this? And I think that is truly a strength of our motivational research where you're able to actually measure what kind of choice and what are we doing in the classroom and actually observing. So it is you can test it empirically. And whereas in terms of when you look at the culturally responsive and relevant education literature, it's not that easy to measure. I just want to make one more point about uh, uh, autonomy and the reason why I said it is bound by the classroom. We give students choices and so forth in the classroom and provide all these opportunities, but really, if you think about it, and I've written about it elsewhere, where when we look at uh, the options and choices that students have, and this, this really came out of my uh, interviews, which I did way back, uh, but, but and, some of the, and some of the more recent work I've done as well, where I was looking at what are the options that are available for students, not just within the classroom, but if you look at, uh, um, look at where, what are they going to do in the future? What courses are they taking? Do I have the choice to take uh, certain courses? 
if they are not even offered in the school, then the choice they, they don't even have that option to make that choice. And so in that way, I think we um, their choices are curtailed because those options are, not, are really not available to these students. Uh, for example, in some schools that, are, that I went into, there were um, four remedial math classrooms and uh, just one regular math class. Then I go into another school where they had two AP classes and two regular classes for math. That immediately changes the choices. Not it's not just within the classroom, but as, as a whole, what are things available for you so you can really have a good education? So I think that is something that also we need to think about when we talk about autonomy. Is it true autonomy when they don't have viable options? Right. So it's not just the opportunity to choose, but what choices are available. To right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes good sense. And that, again, argues for this process view of autonomy where students are given the opportunity to be critical about that and perhaps the tools they need to try to enact the kind of change necessary to have additional options. Oh, I like the way you interpreted it. Yes, exactly. Oh, good. Uh, you said something else which was really interesting was, and it, it tracks with what you and Akane wrote in the paper. Um, you had some thoughts about the kinds of research that have been done, both in motivation and in the culturally relevant and responsive education literatures. You talked about the need for more mixed methods, more nuanced research. Can you say a little bit about that? Yes. I really like the notion of uh, mixed methods. In fact, I've, I'm com I've completely bought into mixed methods, particularly after writing the chapter on, uh, you know, in contemporary psych recently, where we actually asked students, what is it that would make school a happier place to be in? It was just that one question and uh, students talked so much about it and they talked about uh, the teachers who get me, they talked about uh, intergroup relationships in school, they talked about the curriculum and all these things. It was so rich. We conducted about 63 focus group interviews, but it was fascinating to hear these students talk about what are the things they would, they would like to see in a school or a classroom. And then we used what they had said and then created this measure where we said, okay, what from students' perspective, from th looking through their eyes, what is culturally relevant and responsive? And they talked about curriculum, they talked about intergroup relationships with peers, they talked about school policies and practices. So uh, I think when we talk about culturally responsive and relevant, for example, uh, it is not just uh, what is going on in a single classroom, but it encompasses the whole environment. And, and we were able to do that just because we adopted this mixed method where we did, we explored first using uh, focus group interviews. What is it that students want? What is it that they value? And then using that to create this measure, which goes, I think, beyond just uh, student-teacher relationships or how the curriculum is offered. In fact, they're very thoughtful about it. They uh, they even said that, oh, we cannot talk about every culture, and uh, but but we can certainly create electives. We can. These are all students' words. We can create electives. We can uh, or we can choose uh, what you know if we if we want to learn about and it doesn't have to be just about my own culture but knowing about other cultures as a whole that will help us understand each other i mean these were from the mouths of eighth 
eighth graders and it was and I was wondering why we don't ask students more often what would make them happy. So I think mixed methods has its has its place. It's really important because um, while we, for long we have thought, oh, we focused on quantitative methods in uh, educational psychology, whereas when you look at multicultural education, it is primarily qualitative and it is uh, focused on in so oftentimes in single classrooms with one teacher and so you can generalize. But that doesn't, I'm not trying to anyway minimize either of the methods, but I think bringing both these methods together, I think provides for a richer understanding of the issues that we're trying to study. Well, your example's uh, a, a wonderful way to illustrate that, right? So if, um, and it, it gets back to kind of the race re-imaged idea that Jessica and Paul talked about where, you know, we could go in there and assume that we understand motivation and give them a survey that we've used in the past and, and think that we understand it. But what your research showed was that uh, we needed to explore the idea more. And once we better understood how they were interpreting it, that can then inform better quantitative measurements. So that's a, a wonderful example of the, the benefits of mixed methods, particularly um, in terms of topics like this one. So uh, one of the things that you wrote in the article that I thought was interesting was uh, you said that culturally relevant and responsive education research could be scrutinized for its singular focus on students of color. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what you meant by that? Well, if you look at most of the research or most of the work that's being done, you know, it's oftentimes, it is in urban classrooms. It is in, uh, in classrooms where students are either predominantly African-American or predominantly Latinx or uh, um, any one specific group. Even when you look at literature that's, uh, you know, um, the earlier literatures where they looked at uh, the students in Hawaii, for example, is just that group and their learning, how do they learn and what is the best way to teach them? I'm not saying that's not important and that has taught us a lot about what it means to be culturally responsive. But I, I also think that um, we are uh, more often than more often, and it's going to be much more so, I think, that schools are becoming more and more diverse. So um, how do you then teach in a classroom that is multicultural and not monocultural? Because uh, much of the culturally responsive teaching has been conducted in predominantly monocultural classrooms. And the one thing I like about, um, um, about motivational research is how do you create an optimal learning environment for all students? So all students are motivated. And I think ultimately that has to be our goal in any classroom where um, we are, when we have students from multiple diverse backgrounds, how do we create this optimal learning environment where all these students, we can engage all these students. Uh, I think that's what I meant when I said it is focused mainly on students of color. I'm just reminded of uh, this classroom in, uh, in, at the university, for example, where I was talking to the student who was done, again, this was in, a, in an interview where he, uh, where he talked about uh, not understanding something in physics at the college level. And he, and he was very cognizant of the fact that he hadn't had AP classes and so forth in school. And so it was quite a simple thing, but he did not understand. And all that the professor said was, oh, but you ought to know this at this stage. I think it takes a lot of courage for a student to say that I don't understand in a classroom, 
And so how do I respond to it? I, as, a, as a professor, if you were to say, um, maybe I wasn't clear enough. Maybe, why don't you come? We can talk about it. Why don't you come and meet me? That would be, that shows genuine care and empathy regarding where the student comes from. And so I think those are things that really, those are markers of being culturally responsive. I, I agree. I mean, that being able to respond positively to a student who has taken the brave step to say that they don't understand something, um, to be able to respond to that in a positive and affirming way is cultural competence. And in many ways, your article talks about meaningfulness, competence, autonomy, relatedness, which are higher order concepts that really do require teachers to understand the framework and then implement them in the classroom in the ways that seem best for those students in that classroom. It's not this prescriptive, you have to learn how to rap or you have to you know, understand the current memes that are out there. That's, that's overly simplistic. And so I really like the way that your article frames cultural competence in these broader sets of ideas um, that, as you said, demonstrate authentic care. That, that seems to be a, at least a critical piece of it. Yeah. In fact, I, in the process of writing this, it seemed to me that uh, even it helped me sort of integrate all the different motivational frameworks. It's not just a self-efficacy theory or self-determination theory, achievement goal theory, but there are these overarching themes that run through our motivation literature. These are the overarching themes that run through uh, the other literatures as well. And how can we get the best of all these is important. Absolutely. Anything we can do to reduce the number of theories out there that people need to learn and, and use is okay in my book. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your future directions for your own research? I think what I did thus far, it has been, this has been something that has been with me for ever since I started graduate school. I, I, this has, this has, I've been passionate about both culture and motivation and self and identity. And, but in the process of doing all this research, one of the things that really stuck out for me was that understanding self, understanding one's own, uh, the, one's own cultural roots is as important and being aware, which honestly, even I wasn't aware till I came to the US and I found myself in this completely different cultural context. And so it is that developing that personal awareness is important, developing awareness of other where others are coming from is important and it was truly by chance that i stumbled upon all this literature on uh, on mindfulness i know it's become very popular now i didn't did not even realize that when i started thinking about it but, but the two things that i think that's um, that i think are important there are one is developing self-awareness and the second is being non-judgmental and the reason I think these two are important is because when I studied teachers and later pre-service teachers, implicit beliefs about different groups, implicit bias, and their explicit beliefs about different cultural groups. How does this relate to uh, what they do in the classroom? And I looked at it using achievement goal theory. I said, uh, mastery, you know, do they create a mastery-focused environment or a performance-focused environment? And what I found fascinating was that these implicit biases and explicit biases are 
either directly linked to creating a performance-focused environment or it's mediated through feeling culturally responsible, through being willing to adapt instruction for culturally diverse students, through feelings of cultural efficacy, and or it would be a cultural competence. So how do you then achieve this cultural competence? How do you overcome these biases to create this classroom environment that is optimal for growth and development? And that's where I started thinking that mindfulness development may be a way to go. Mindfulness, particularly with regard to self-awareness and other awareness and being more non-judgmental. And so, yes, and that is the direction I want to go at this point. In fact, I'm hoping next year I can do something about that and work on that uh, in more depth. Well, it sounds really promising. And the way that you're approaching mindfulness as a way to improve teacher cultural competence and therefore student experience in the classroom. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, but it also sounds like a, uh, a more complex and nuanced approach to mindfulness than some of the other ones I've heard. So that, that's exciting. I hope you get a chance to continue pushing on that. So Ravti, thank you again for taking some time today to talk to us about your article. I, I found the conversation really interesting and engaging. Um, I want to recommend that our listeners seek out the article. Again, it's called Weaving Cultural Relevance and Achievement Motivation into Inclusive Classroom Cultures. And you wrote it with Akane Zusho and Rhonda Bondi. And it's in the 2018 volume 53 of Educational Psychologist. Um, so I, I encourage everyone to, to get that article and read it. But um, Ravti, thank you again very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed having this conversation with you.